Hi, folks, and welcome. This is Audio Blog Post 4, which I am now calling a podcast. (laughs) The reason is because I have a guest today, and I'm excited about it. I'm sure you've noticed the blog has a new look and feel, so thank you, friends, new and old, for your support of the blog. It's growing. I wasn't sure what the blog was going to be when I first started it 15 months ago. It sort of evolved into my little slice of the web where people can go to grow and learn, and I'm really enjoying all the people that I'm meeting and connecting with people from years past. Um, but speaking of learning and growing, that that's what my guest today is all about. His name is Chase Lambin. He's been my buddy for 25 years, my best buddy for 25 years. He and I went to high school together at Sci Falls in Houston, Texas. Uh, he went on to play baseball at Grayson Junior College where he won a few World Series titles there. And he transferred to the University of Texas before landing at University of Louisiana Lafayette where he was drafted in the 34th round by the New York Mets. So he's played a lot of professional baseball. I think he played until he was 35 years old. Um, And he'll talk about that. He's currently a hitting coach in the Texas Rangers organization. Um, Anyway, I thought my subscribers would benefit from sort of being a fly on the wall when Chase and I get together. We talk about this kind of stuff all the time. So he gave a talk recently at a university not far from here. We're in Houston today. Um, And the talk was fire. I was hanging on every word. So I think after listening to our conversation, you'll get a a sense of what he's about and why we have remained so close for 25 years now, because he's just a beast when it comes to self-development and mindset. And, um, you know, now he's, he's impacting other people through service to others. So, um, Chase, welcome to the, to the podcast, man. I'm glad you're here. Thanks, man. Good for, uh, good, good to be here. And that's a, pretty cool intro I, I appreciate it man <clears throat> yeah man so we met in ninth grade it was 1994 do you remember the story of where we met was it at club happened? shelter it was club shelter it was an all-ages club right near Willowbrook mall and I walked in and they had some of the the white puffy smoke going every 30 seconds or so and when the smoke cleared, I saw this dude with blonde curls, khaki pants, and a yellow polo shirt just getting it, getting after it on the dance floor. And I was like, who is that dude? And what, how do I get to know that dude? He's going to be my friend. And they told me that you played baseball. And that's kind of how we were introduced at an all-ages club in Houston. I don't even know if they had those still anymore, but I'm sure I'm not letting my eighth-grade son go to a club. But I'm, <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad we were able to. We had a good time there, and I think I spotted you too. And I was like, this this guy's he's got his own style. Kept bringing some Louisiana dance moves, and I said, this this, this is what I'm about. <laughs> that's awesome. And then so a few years later. We, um, so I was doing an IG live, Instagram live yesterday and it was a young guy in his twenties and he was asking me whether he should be an entrepreneur or be an employee, which route was better to go when you're young. And I told him that you always want to be enterprising. So I told a story recently on a podcast about how I started in eighth grade buying and selling uh, basketball cards. And so I've been enterprising since eighth grade. And then when you and I started driving in 10th, 11th grade, we started our own little business. Do you remember what that was? Gosh, my, my children are going to probably hear this one day. And I'm <laughs> kind of calling us out here, but yeah, we, we had our own little, um, cup selling business where we sold keg cups at our, uh, Chase and Brad's keg party. So yeah, we were, we were making a coin, uh, all the way back in the day. <laughs> That's right. So the, the 
keg was $60 and we would uh, take, we would buy red solo cups and sell them at our, what we call land parties uh, for like $5 a cup. And you and I would split, split up the proceeds at the end of the night and we would make a killing. And some people would get pulled over um, around Houston, around the area where we went to high school and they would get asked, like, were you at a Chase and Brad party? <laughs> so, yeah, you drove a white Jeep, I drove a red convertible. So other white Jeeps and other red convertibles would be pulled over. And are you, uh, are you uh, Chase or Brad? Or uh, I couldn't wear my letter jacket around police officers because I had the <laughs> name Chase on the back because we were notorious, like we were, like we were old school gangsters or something. But we were just trying to make a buck selling some beer, ca uh, some beer cups. It's <laughs> awesome. So we have grown up a little bit since then, huh? Yeah, a little bit. It took us a while. <laughs> That's great. So you were drafted out of Louisiana Lafayette in the 34th round. Is that right? That is correct. So what happened when you were draft? What Tell us what happens after you're drafted that late in the draft. Oh, yeah. We, I didn't really know what, what to expect. I thought it was uh, you get drafted and then a couple of weeks they, they sign you. But it all happened pretty quick. Our scout was like calling my phone, trying to line up a time to, to sign the contract. And you know, we were too busy partying as a family. I think my parents went and bought every Met hat in the city of Houston and all my friends came <laughs> over and we made it a party. And then our um, our scout actually, my scout showed up to that party and uh, that was his first impression of, of us, I guess, was that we're a little bit wild. So uh, we got the paperwork signed and within three or four days, I had shipped out to, to Florida and was there a couple days. And then within a week, I was in Brooklyn, New York, uh, fighting for my life. <clears throat> wow. So. What kind of money do you mind me asking? Like, what, what do they pay a guy who's drafted in the 34th round? Well, you don't have much leverage as a senior. You're not going to go back to school. You're not going to do anything other than take what they offer. So they gave me $1,000 before taxes, which comes out to about 600 bucks and a plane <laughs> ticket. And uh, most guys get the rest of their education paid for. And I think I asked for that. And the scout said, let me make a phone call. And he came back and he said, no, we can't do that. I said, all right, well, <laughs> all right, you drive a hard bargain, but uh, let's do this. So I signed for $600. And then I think the monthly pay was like $900 before taxes, after taxes, and then after paying a couple hundred bucks to stay in the Brooklyn Polytech dorm, I think my actual paycheck was like $272. Wow. And living in New York City, making, uh, you know, $270. I guess <laughs> it was bi-monthly, bi so it was maybe half of that per every two weeks. It was, I thought I was rich though. I never made a single dollar playing baseball, so I, I wasn't complaining, I don't know. I think I ate a lot of sliced pizza on the side of the road for a dollar because I couldn't afford anything else. <laughs> you mentioned uh, Brooklyn, New York, and I, I heard you talk about that in your most recent talk, and it sort of shaped your mindset and mentality. So how did you shift where you, you came from a place where you were the man, and then you go to Brooklyn, New York? Tell us about that. Yeah, you. Uh, I got there, and it seemed like the roster had about 45 guys on it, and every one of them was some sort of All-American or from another country and just extremely talented you know more talented i felt than me and uh it was a bit of a shock because you know like you said i was coming from a, a team where i was the, the best player and so now you're not the best player physically and that's when you have a decision to make of you know how are you going to separate yourself from the pack and i for whatever reason uh for a lot of reasons my upbringing and the experiences i had in college i decided to be just be different and start creating uncommon habits to keep myself in the frame, you know, to keep myself in front of my coach's eyes and keep myself, you know, uh, on their lips in some way, somehow, and um, and just try to make a name for myself, regardless of my skill set, because my skill set wasn't that wasn't that intriguing. So I, I just tried to develop an identity that was above and beyond my my peers. I mean, one of the, the reasons I just love hanging around you, I've always loved just 
every chat that we have, it just I get the sense that your soul is on fire. You're a thinker. You're you're always learning and trying to get better. Where does that fire come from? It's a good question. That beginner's mind is so paramount for anybody to have success. I mean, there's growth-minded and fixed-minded, and, and uh, I think just going off into college and going five hours away from home to Grayson County and putting in an element where there's so many people from all over the world in such a different environment really hard-nosed, gritty environment in junior college, and you just start to adapt and find your way and find ways to separate yourself you know, away from your parents and your friends from high school, and you just get out there and get uh, uncomfortable. And through that uncomfortableness and that, that friction, and, and you start going through pain and discomfort and adversity, and you know, the obstacle is the way sometimes, and on the other side of pain is growth. So that growth started to happen, and I started to dig that growth through uh, through the the, the, the the adversities and and you start to build up your armor to handle those and how do you build that up you start reading books you start learning about other people you start meeting really impactful people my first coach in college is now the number one division one baseball coach arguably in the nation uh, Tim Tadlock at Texas Tech so he's my first person I come in contact with after high school and I'm so malleable and so um, eager to, to to learn at 19 20 and 21 and I just and then I go to Augie Garrido at University of Texas. Then I go to Coach Robichaux at Louisiana Lafayette. These are impactful, top of the tip of the spear, top probably ten college baseball coaches in the in, in the nation. And these are the guys I'm I'm cutting my teeth around and developing my identity and myself. So that when I go into pro ball, I have these these men that have been in my life that have 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 prepared me to handle these these storms that are coming. So you played in. 13 over 1300 games in the minor leagues and i know that you logged a year in japan playing for uh bobby uh, valentine bobby valentine yeah so you came very close to the big leagues in america and it had to be it had to have an impact to get so close to where you could smell it and not get to taste it and i know that one of your teammates asked you earlier in your career if you didn't make it to the big leagues, would it all be for naught? Without hesitation, you said no. Absolutely not. And I remember I was I was in the minority in that clubhouse. A lot of guys looked at me kind of weird because they all thought that it was just for that pot at the end of the rainbow, that pot of gold. And I obviously there's a that's a pretty large carrot to go to the major leagues, and the minimum's five hundred thousand. The average is three point three million, and that's 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 motivating, and it's that's a strong thing to chase. But for me, it never was about the money. It was like I genuinely loved playing the game. I genuinely loved challenging myself and getting better and the camaraderie and all the things that come along with it. And my goal was to make it to the big leagues, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't my sole focus. I just knew that the good stuff was in the moment. Like, you know, I was present. You know, I try to stay where my feet are and I just I just had such a good time on on a daily basis doing what I was doing that I I had a a weird sense of uh perspective that I knew that this is good stuff and I'm going to miss this one day and I should just enjoy this now because it's not always going to be this way and ride this 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 experience for as long as I can which I did I played till I was 35 and I had you know every year had special times and memories and I'd I don't know where I first heard you know it's the journey not the destination but when I heard it and or read it it just resonated with me and it made so much sense that it's there is no finish line it's a we're a constant work in progress of growth and experiences and and relationships and it just it's just the way i've i've set my life up you know the fact that you can now impart that on young guys i mean they have to just 
eat that up. You know, a lot of people condemn the younger generation, but you put in the time to mold young guys. You put in the effort to mold young men. And, you know, a lot of these young guys, you know, were quick to, to, to lambast the younger generation. Um, you know, you and I have talked about how they're always in their screens. They're always on their phones. Um, how do you talk to them? Um, you know, some of these kids are given hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars, and they're in their, their 20s. Um, some of them have always been the man and never faced adversity. How do you talk to those guys? That's a, that's a good question. It's, it's Each kid's different, and that's the, the beauty of my profession is that it's developing those relationships, and I have to develop those. Before I can develop a baseball swing, I have to develop a relationship and a, and a level of trust, and each kid comes from a different background. You get to know them, who they who they are, where they came from, and you're right, they are coming in with a million dollars in their pocket and they've never batted under 500 or 400 or whatever they batted in high school and college. They've always been the man. So they're not that open to listening. They're just, they don't feel like they need to because they haven't had to do anything other than ride their talent. And you try to you know, warn them of the storm coming that at some point the game's gonna ask you to do more than just be physically talented and gifted. And you try to give them the tools to set themselves up for when that comes. But sometimes they're just, they just won't believe you until they feel that pain and, and so that's part of the the hardening process is the hardest steel has to go through the hottest fire and there's some hot fires in pro sports and you you see it coming you know it's coming but you almost um hope it happens sooner rather than later because the sooner they can feel that and start to change their habits the better they're going to be so I, I almost want them to get into pro ball and as soon as possible just get squared up get punched right between the eyes by the game and just realize that you know that it takes more than just being talented and so once they once they get hit between the eyes, they're they're scrambling, look, you know, just looking for air. And I, I provide that oxygen because I've been down the road there going down. I've felt the pain they've felt. So that empathy gets me into their heart and into their minds to where they they listen to my advice. And sometimes I wonder if they're hearing it. Sometimes it's hard to tell at in the moment. Maybe it takes a year or two and maybe it takes five, ten, who knows? But I get I get the feedback in little chunks where you, know, you see them make the adjustments, they start having success, and every once in a while the kid will have enough savvy to actually come up and say thank you, or you'll get a text, you know, maybe when they're released and they've moved on to another part of their life, they, they come around on the backside and they thank me for you know pouring into them and giving them the, the wisdom and advice and helping as best I could to navigate their career. And, and, and that's for me is, you know, whether they get to the big leagues or they get released in high A and they go on to sell pharmaceuticals, like I, I I'm all in on them as humans and if I can help them be a better pharmaceutical salesman or a better husband or a better father, you know, I, I, I've done my job and that's where I get my salary. I mean, that's, it's, there's no better feeling when, you know, you know, you've slightly changed someone's life arc in a positive way. Yeah. That's the return you get for the investment of time that you've made in these kids. Tell me about a time that, or maybe the time that you were most humbled in your experience. Oof. Man, I've eaten a lot of humble pie. Um, <laughs> you were a cocksure teenager. I mean, yeah. there was nobody more confident on the baseball field than you, and you talked it. Um, but I've heard you talk about getting punched in the mouth, and when did that happen for you? Uh, I feel like the first one was that in high school when I had that I had my, you know, that big junior year, got a lot of recognition, Team USA, a lot of scholarship offers, and I was holding out for Texas, and... and um, and then my senior year, I just didn't have this type of year that I expected. And then, you know, all, all the offers dried up and, and even got around where there, there was people saying that I was a bad kid. I went to certain showcases and I wouldn't run the 60 yard dash. And I got to be known as a, like a problem kid, like not a bad, bad apple type thing, which is crazy to look back on. And, 
and it had to happen that way and i i got brought down brought back down to earth and maybe i was over cocky maybe i was overconfident and conceited and not you know a good team player i, I don't know I, I i felt like i was doing right but it uh it led me to some self-evaluation and some and and you know you got to make adjustments when you don't like where you're at so i didn't like the fact that i didn't have offers i didn't like that i was being known as a bad bad seed or a bad apple and you know thank god i had an opportunity to go play at grayson county and and, and could rebuild my um my reputation and my identity and and the two years at grayson were hands down the most paramount uh influential two years of my life uh for my career and my and my life <clears throat> yeah yeah that's good man self-awareness is so key to the upward trajectory you know um when you were playing pro ball tell us about the time that you came closest to the big leagues um, i'm sure you you ate some humble pie there too as you would say how did that work out well each level you go up you're you're tasked with a new set of challenges that you got to navigate through and there's always just a ton of friction at first where you're you're scrambling trying to survive and then you're then you're thriving and then you feel like you got it figured out which is always a terrible thing to think which i i was guilty of more times than i'd like to admit so you think you got it figured out then you go to the next level and you realize you don't but you know i navigated and got through to the the precipice i got to triple a uh and i batted you know first half of the season in double a second half in triple a and i for the total on the year i batted 310 with 25 home runs and i thought i've i've arrived i can hit elite pitching I can drive the ball to all fields from both sides of the plate. I can play multiple positions. I, you know, I, I can do a lot of things in the baseball field. And I just thought that it was going to happen. And I, I started holding it so tight that I stopped enjoying the moment. I stopped staying present. I was looking towards being in the big leagues and I was looking back in the past about how good I was. And it was just, I wasn't that present, grindy, uncommon chase. And it was so subconscious decisions and I was still working hard. It's not like I just got off the gas pedal and, and got comfortable. I never, never got to that point, but it was just a slight adjustment in my mindset that it, and it got me off course to where I, I, I was so close. I was in big league camp where I was invited over in big league camp one year with, with Willie Randolph and Willie Randolph looked at me after I had a couple home runs, I'm playing awesome. And he's like, man, we just don't have a spot on the roster, but you know, when something goes down, someone gets hurt, you know, you're going to be our guy we call up from AAA. Just go to, go to Norfolk, do your thing for two, three weeks, and we'll see you soon. So for me, I'm getting, I'm getting validation and confirmation from our big league manager that I'm going to be there. And so I go to Norfolk, and you know, first game 0 for 4, no big deal. Second game 0 for 4, now I'm 0 for 8, and I just have a weird feeling in my stomach that it just does not feel right. I feel like the field's facing the wrong direction. <laughs> I feel like the pitcher's 45 feet away. Mm-hmm. I feel like the umpire zone is, you know, this, this huge, and it just – everything starts to snowball in the wrong direction. And I start to panic and I start to lose that clarity and confidence and everything just kind of went out the window at one time to where I just was, became a bad baseball player overnight. And it was such a, it was like watching a, a, a train wreck from, and knowing it's not, you can't stop it. I tried everything to, 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 to change course and I just never could steer it back onto the tracks. And I ended up being horrible for about two and a half months to where they, they literally couldn't call me up because I was batting 150 and I never I started to maybe dig out of it but by then it's the all-star break and they sent me back to double a and I was thankful because I actually got to have a clean slate to go to double a and kind of start over and take a deep breath and it's crazy what a just a, a new environment will do and I went to a new environment with a little bit better energies and that's another thing when I start to look back on the energies that I was around the people I was around and some of the coaches it was like 
it was so stifling. And so I didn't know how impactful people's energies around me were. And when I look back to my good years and my bad years, there was this direct correlation between the type of teammates I had, the type of coaches I had, and the type of years I had, because we're humans and we pick up on energies, both positive and negative. And, and I got to a better environment. And the second half of that season, I, I was my normal self. I went bananas and double A, but by then the, the damage had been done. And the next spring training uh, with the number crunch and my age, I got released. I was released from baseball. Wow. When I was that close, the a year before I was being told by the big league manager I'd be called up and then a year later I'm 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 jobless uh and out outside the game. You're playing on municipal field or mm-hmm. throwing balls on the municipal fields in Florida, right? Yeah. And you a few months earlier you were facing Mar- Mariano Rivera in the minor leagues. That's that's so I mean in big league camp. Yeah. That's just crazy, man. Yeah, it was uh it was a uh, very difficult time in my life like you said to get to to be playing catch in a parking lot and going to little league parks to get ground balls and getting kicked off it just was it just felt so cruel and that's what I the, the game of baseball is does not owe you anything and it it will move on without you and it just felt like the whole game all my buddies everybody was going out to practice or going out to to their affiliates and I was I was left behind that's a that's a terrible feeling yeah yeah, baseball is such a microcosm for life. I mean, if there's one reason to get your kids involved in sports, it's so that they can face this type of adversity. And you talk about surrounding yourself with positive energy. I think we wildly underestimate how susceptible we are to the moods and the emotions of other people. And so you have to be deliberate about who you're getting around because the other thing we underestimate is just how how much we benefit from being around people with a positive mindset and an an attitude for life where they're just attacking it with a sense of urgency and it's infectious you know if your best friend has a serious work ethic the likelihood that you lay on the couch and watch netflix every day is is very very low yeah um yeah so i've benefited so much just from having a relationship with you all these years i was in europe recently with a buddy of mine and he was saying you know i really wish i had a best friend And I thought, you know, we always tend to think that other people have more friends than us, or we think that other people have more money than us. And it just takes getting to know people to understand that it's your journey and you want to look ahead, not around. And you've always been so good about doing that. So I just encourage listeners, get a best friend. Like Mm. the way to get good friends is to be a friend the way to be worthy of a good mate or a good job is to make yourself worthy of those things and you've always been so good about that so it's something that i've always really valued about our relationship so who is the most impressive person that you have met Um, and it doesn't have to be a baseball player but you know i know since you've ascended the ranks you get an opportunity to meet more stud type guys um, and, you know, I benefit from the stories that you tell me and I get to pass them on. But do you have anybody in mind when I say who's the most impressive person that you've met? Oh, man, I've been very blessed to be uh, around some elite people and not just physically. But I mean, the game of baseball requires you to be not just elite uh, with your tools, but with your, your mindset and your work habits and your you know, deliberate practices. And because and, that's the separator. So you're around hundreds and hundreds of players and coaches and you're going to come across some absolute savages that are are dialed in and I remember my first full season playing playing alongside David Wright I'm at shortstop and he's at third base and he's a he's a kid compared to me I'm 23 a little seasoned he's 19 and he was 
more mature, he was more disciplined, he was better well-spoken, he was everything better than me at four years younger. And I consider myself, a, I was pretty savvy 23 year old, but I mean, he had a way about him that was just unbelievable. I mean, he did, he, he was a, a better human than he was a player and he's a hall of fame caliber player. So you couldn't find a chink in his armor. Like he was a, uh, it was almost annoying to the point where like, there's probably people that don't, didn't like him because he was that perfect of a human. Obviously he's not, <laughs> he's not perfect, but you know, this, every conversation with him was great. His infectious energy, his work ethic, he's a great teammate. Um, guys like that stick out and he, you know, he, no, it's no mystery why he went on to do what he did. Um, guys like John Lackey where, you know, you see a level of competitiveness that's almost shocking to where you hear people talk about Kobe Bryant. You're like, this guy is an absolute killer. And you, and you wonder if you could get to that level or you wonder where it comes from, but you see it on a daily basis and you start to, you pick up things that are, you're around people. When I'm at 19 years old and I'm playing next to John Lackey and he would, I mean, he'd slit your throat to, to get you out or get a hit. And uh, to the point where he was obnoxious at times. He was sometimes a bad teammate because he'd get emotional and call out his teammates. And and uh, but he becomes John Lackey and plays pitches 15 years in the major leagues, wins a couple of World Series because of that competitiveness. And guys, like some of the coaches, Tim Tadlock and Bobby Valentine, and um, there's just been, I mean, there's so many people I've come across in my in my in my career that. Uh, I took from, not in a bad way, but you get around people that are, are doing things differently, that are uncommon and exceptional with their habits, and you can't help it but watch them and start to uh, uh, emulate them because you admire them. You know, yeah. you, you know what, what is it, imitation is the best form of flattery? Like yeah. you start to imitate the people that you admire, and then you start to develop John Lackey's competitiveness and David Wright's humility and, and, and personal relationship skills. And you start to emulate Tim Tadlock's laid back, uh, intensity. And, and it just, you start to build from within this person that's made from a thousand different parts of the people you come across. And that's why you've got to put yourself around people that are elite so you can be formed by them. <clears throat> yeah. I, I think that way too. So everybody that you encounter, like every man that I've been around that I've respected, I try to incorporate the positive attributes that they have into my own character. And then when somebody is something that I don't want to be, I kind of see them as an anti-role model. So you can learn just as much from people who are not respectable mm -hmm. as you can who are respectable. And it really helps you to navigate life and rem keep a sense of poise and calm when you go through life that way where you can learn something from everybody. So well said. And the, 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 some of the best hitting coaches I have are the bad ones. Yeah. Because I learned to kind of be my own hitting coach one. And then I, on the backside of that, now that I'm a coach, I know exactly what I didn't like as a, as a hitter. I know exactly what rubbed me the wrong way about my coaches. So I, I, I it's burned into my brain. So where I, I, if I feel myself going down that road, I'd stop myself and try to not be what that was. And you're right. And that's been as developmental for me than the, the good coaches and and but you have to have the discernibility and the 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 perspective to know what's good and bad and what to and how to use it in the in the future yeah and then you learn that stuff and you reflect and you journal and you just become a student of your own life and you get better that way um one of the highest compliments that i have ever been paid somebody said man you should have been a, a navy seal and i'm like no my body would break down sooner yeah, than that sure. but you've gotten to meet some navy seals yeah um tell us about the guy you met recently yeah uh, I, I heard about a guy named david goggins a couple years ago and 
he's a Navy SEAL, he's an Army Ranger, he's uh, he's in three special forces, and then he also runs ultra marathons. He runs 150 mile races, and he's pretty much the hardest dude on the planet. I started watching YouTube videos and reading articles about him, and I was just like, this guy's on another level. And he's he's you think he's crazy, you think he's a masochist, but you hear him talk, and he's he's his his ride of mind, and he's has clarity and a purpose, and he knows exactly what he's doing, and he knows that. Um, he, he wants to do something he hates every single day to harden himself from the inside out. And he calls it, you know, I'm callousing my mind. Like I callous my hands. I'm going to callous my mind to where I'm, I'm, I'm transforming myself to be the hardest person on the planet. And he's not lying. And so he, we actually were fortunate enough to have him come and talk to our players in instructional league a couple of years ago and tell his story to our players. And I'm on the edge of my seat because I know I already know all about him. And then uh, I was fortunate to go out to dinner with him afterwards with a couple of our uh, front office members and a couple coaches. And he's as impressive in person as he is, you know, telling his story and um, just being around him and seeing how he's set up his life to, to, to become that person and where he came from. And, you, you know, you read his book, it's, it's crazy what he's transformed himself in from where he came from. His childhood was awful. And now he's turned it around and used that awful childhood as fuel to fuel this fire inside him to be, you know, the, the elite of the elite and the, the special forces and uh, those, those type guys that you read about and you hang around, you can't help but be uh, changed a little bit by them. And, and there's parts of it that I don't, I don't want to be, I don't, he's leveraged his entire life to do this and he's, and it's not like I want to be him, but I, there's a couple of things where I, I do, I do respect the, the, the habits that he's created. Yeah, and it's all about habits, right? I mean, if you're going to live a life that is so exceptional that other men, I've heard you talk about this, that other men want to be, they want to be you, if not, if they can't be around you, um, you know, any way to get around a guy like David Goggins. So the talk that you gave recently, you interacted with those in the audience and you asked them about their habits and talk about habits and why that's so important. Um, your habits are who you are, you know, your actions and what you do make you, it's not what you think, it's not what you say, it's what you do. So the success curve and the, there's a book that we've both read, the slide edge, it talks about the small decisions you make on a daily basis over the course of time is what separates people. And at first you start out side by side. It doesn't seem like there's much difference between me and Joe Schmuckatelli who's doing nothing different. I'm doing all these different, you know, uncommon habits over the course of time. He's sloping down, I'm sloping up, and over 20 years, we're far, far, far apart. And those uncommon habits lead to success over time. And um, the, how I tied that in in that, in that talk was that those uncommon habits I developed to survive as a 34th round talent for you know 13 years in pro ball um, had a ripple effect where I was impacting the people around me unknowingly, inadvertently. I was trying to just get to the big leagues and be the best player I could be and enjoy the ride but people were watching. And then so at the end of my career, when I fizzle out and I don't get to the big leagues and I spend 13 years in the minor leagues and don't get a single day of that uh, golden carrot, you know, some people would say, well, well, darn, that's uh, that's unfortunate, but it's the exact opposite because the, the, the pot at the, of the end of the rainbow for me was the fact that I became a human catalyst. I became a person that impacted men by being around them and people wanted to start to emulate my habits and do more like me. Now I'm having a, a, a ripple effect all around me, which is in my opinion, way cooler than getting a, a big check. So I could go buy a car or a toy or whatever it may be. And for, yeah, so it, it was, it was cool to, 
to self-reflect and look back and I'm still a work in progress. I'm not even halfway done developing, but you, know, you start to see yourself as, as a human catalyst. Like, are you, are you impacting people in a positive way, a negative way? Or are you just a neutral, uh, neutral guy going through life? That's it, man. Habits are everything. And they compound over time. They compound without you realizing it. And once things start compounding, whether it's money or relationships or habits, um, you really you keep your head down for 10 years. You pick your head up. After a decade, you've realized that you have really separated yourself. And for you to say now that you're still ha what, halfway there, is that what you said? Not you're even. still developing. So the fact that you're still open to learning and you're coachable, I mean, that I've, I was told that recently, man, you're so coachable. And, and yeah, that's like the highest compliment that you can be paid because you want to be open minded until, you know, you can be 87 years old and still be open to learning. It's one of the reasons I say that you should have friends at every age. So, you know, I know that you cultivate relationships with young guys and you have friends who are in their 60s and 70s who you consider mentors. Uh, one of the guys you mentor contacted me the other day and said, hey, man, I'd like to build a relationship with you. And I said, hey, man, a friend of Chase's is a friend of mine. Here's where I would start. Start keeping a journal. These are the books I would read. You know, follow up with me in a month or two and we'll talk. Um, so, yeah, that's just so huge. One of the things is talking about open to learning. And I'm going to kind of switch gears away from baseball and talk about decisions. So you are a great decision maker. And I've heard you talk to your kids about the importance of making good decisions. Um, one of the things that's always impressed me, when you have a big decision to make, you will call me and ask what I think because you value my opinion. And then you will call four of your other good buddies and you will ask their opinion and then you will draw your own conclusion based on the opinions of, of those that you're close to. And that's really impressive. So so few people do that and, and especially younger people, and I hate to keep talking about the younger generation, but they tend to think that they know it all and you have never been that way. So whether you're about to make a move or face a job or promotion, you have to negotiate a salary, that is something that you and I always talk about. And so um, I know that you have a mentor, Mr. Jeunesse, and your wife always has good advice. Um, so where, how do you think about making decisions? Why do you talk to your kids about making decisions? Like, wh what is that? Like, where does that come from? How do you think about it? That's a good question. I think I'm, I'm, I've always been a seeker of wisdom. I've always sought out wiser people than myself because I don't know it all. And the, and the, the people, the, the more you realize you don't know, the more you're going to be open to learning. You know, you're, you're, you're going to be primed to receive new information. And I figure the more questions I ask and the more, more people I tap into that are, in my view, smarter and wiser than me, the more smart and wise I become. I, I, that's that the beginner's mind. I, I talk about that. I, I don't have all the answers. I don't know it all. I and so therefore I'm going to ask questions and I'm going to try to get better clarity when it comes to making decisions. And and decisions are tough sometimes, especially when you get in the real world. You have real life things to decide on. When you have a family, it's not just you. It's you, your wife, your kids, your your entire future and legacy. And so you you rally the troops. You you get your your band of brothers together and you. You ask what they think, and you take it all into consideration, and you you pray on it, and you you have you sleep on it, and you have your own thoughts and your own gut. And the, my my mentor, Mr. Janess, the first time I met him, the first thing he told me, or one of the first things I'll never forget, he pointed to his belly button. He's like, "This is never wrong. And your gut is never wrong. Obviously, get, gather information, but but if you sit still and you close your eyes, you know the decision. If you if you if you look inside, you know obviously, you know what is the gut? It's a 
I feel like the gut's a, a, a combination of all the life experiences you have um, from the people you've been around, the things you've read and done that, that create this uh, uh, intuition inside of you that, that leads you towards certain directions. And, and he, what, another cool thing about him is that uh, not many decisions are, are, are fine. Uh, what's the word? The, in his mind, there's no wrong decision. You know, people, the, the cream's going to rise to the top, whether, whatever route you go, uh, you know, you kind of, you plow ahead and make your own path. So he's, uh, he, he's obviously a, a special individual in my life and he's been a huge impact on me, but yeah, I, I, I rally, I try to, I try to gather wisdom anywhere I can. I've, I've, uh, uh, and then in, ter- in doing so, the wisdom I gather, I can impart on, on the people younger than me or older than me. That's awesome. I wrote an article on the blog called How to Pass a Shit Test. <laughs> and I write about high value men. And to me, you are high value. And the reason, I mean, I outline the reasons you have to go and, and read it for those who are listening. But um, people who are always increasing their value. And that is something that you have always done. And you're really starting to see in your career the fruits of, of your labor because you are actually turning down big jobs nowadays right and those are big decisions um how do you make those decisions to to tell us about that oh man it's um decisions are very difficult for me like they they, they grind on me i overthink things that's maybe why i ask so many people questions about it because i do i do uh, chew on them a lot I, those people that make decisions from the hip and they go and they they don't look back but um you do increase value for yourself you you get into a situation you get into say they're texas rangers and you develop relationships and you and you build your value within an organization and then you build up enough value to where you're recognized by other organizations i'm sure it happens in the real world just like it does in baseball and then you're sought after by those other organizations and you have a choice do you want to jump ship or do you want to stay with the ship you're on and continue to develop those relationships and build, help build something from within and be a big part of a, something that's being built or do you want to jump on coattails with someone else and what do you, what do you want to do and i had i've had those decisions the last few years where i could jump to the front of the line and be a triple a hitting coach with the team that went to the world series the last two years the you know the the, the la dodgers and it's tempting and most people will probably jump on it because it's a, great for the resume it's great for the pocketbook it's great for your ego it's great for uh putting yourself in line to be the next big league hitting coach but for a multitude of reasons i value um doing it the hard way i don't know why i always choose to go the hard route and the road less traveled but i'm that turtle that i'm not i don't want to skip line i don't want to jump to the front and and uh and jump on coattails i want to build something from within and build something that's bigger than me and have a purpose that's much larger than me like i i genuinely see in my mind a vision of the Texas Rangers winning a World Series and me being on that field with the word Texas across my chest and maybe it's a pipe dream where it's like uh, this fantasy thing but I, I, I see that and that it allures you know I see the Cubs win the World Series for the first time in 100 years I see the Astros win their first World Series of their of their franchise history and I watch those things like a kid on Christmas Eve is I get so excited <laughs> to watch those how that unfolds and what the city goes through and what the team goes through and then the story after it and how it all had to happen and and that just fires me up and i i feel like you know the rangers haven't won a world series and they need difference makers to help mold and shape their young men and and make decisions within the organization to help 
you know, fought, uh, shepherded it in the right direction. And I feel like I had those skills to do it. And I, I had the relationships developed where I have autonomy and I have not power, but I have a say. So I have a, a big part of this big ship being moved towards a World Series. And that's so attractive to me. Yeah. Along with being in the state of Texas, proximity to my home, my family was a huge part of my decision-making process of how I can spend the most time with them in a job that is very challenging when it comes to taking you away from your family. So it's it's a lot of things that come together, but um, the thing that stays the same is I'm gonna grow and learn and, and, and milk each experience, whether I'm in the big leagues or in A-ball. So it's, I'm, I'm in a win-win situation. You know, if I had a chance to ask everybody who has a job one question, it would be, what is a day in the life of a fry cook at McDonald's or a construction superintendent? Like, walk me through your day. What does it look like? And your your occupation is very interesting to people, I would think, because you're a coach in a major league baseball organization. So walk me through your day. Like, what does your day look like, your average day, if there is one? People don't realize how laborious the professional baseball life is, coaching or playing. I mean, we're we're playing seven days a week. Uh, we play 142 games in 152 days, so that's 28 days out of the month that you're working uh, 10 to 12 hour day. I mean, the, if, if say the game's at seven o'clock, you're at the field around noon or one, um, so you have some time in the morning with your family. But once you get to the field, uh, you're putting together the practice plan, you're putting together the groups for the hitting. You know, the hitters have to go through their hitting routine in the cages. They have their, uh, I call it their vitamins, where they're doing their drill packages to, to work on their, their deficiencies and the things they need to work on. They have, they're also doing weight training. They're doing speed work. The pitchers are doing work with the pitching coach. There's a, a ton of activity from 1 in the afternoon until game time that people don't realize. People show up at 7 o'clock, and they think that we just rolled in at 6 and, and threw on a uniform and played. But, you know, the heavy lifting's done for those five, six hours before the game even starts. And then you have batting practice on the field, and most times, um, you know, we don't just do a traditional generic batting practice. We're doing some sort of challenge that I'm going to create an environment to make the kids uncomfortable, and that's from, for me is the is the best way for a guy to learn is to just get uncomfortable and have their body and mind organize it their, itself to uh, master that task. I'll maybe put a, a, a pitching machine throwing at an uncomfortable speed. I'll do multiple machines with mixed variable speeds to where they're having to adjust from hard to soft. Uh, we'll put together competitions and make and make teams to where we'll have a point system for a hitting competition to where we just go straight recess, you know, playground style where guys are just competing and learning to how to compete and take their mind out of their bodies and put it on just external cues and just and fight each other to win. And uh, I feel like you do that consistent basis and the competition at seven gets easier. So each one of my days is either we're either competing we're hitting velocity or hitting multiple speeds on the field. And you combine that with infield work, base running work, hitters meetings, talking about then you put together the scouting report of the pitchers at night from the scout system that we have that gives us information on the pitchers we're going to be facing. You debrief from the night before about what happened in the game before, what we could have done better, what we did well. You're pumping tires, you're, you're checking guys, you're holding guys accountable. It's a, it's a, it's a full day of, of interactions and communications and drills and creating habits. And then the fun part is the, is the game. So that's the, it's not easy for me, but I don't have that much responsibility other than to talk guys through their at-bats, give them a plan, give them some clarity going up to the plate, you know, help them get through. They've struck out twice and they're, you know, their world's spinning. I'm trying to get them back on track to not 
give away their last two at bats and I'm helping my manager with defensive alignments and different decisions he has to make. Um, I'm keeping a chart and then the game ends 10 or 11. Uh, we have a debrief after the game where we talk to the players about what happened um, and then there's a report to do. So I go online and I write a report about each one of the players, what I saw, what they're working on. So the organization's abreast of what's going on with each player and that goes on till about midnight. I get to bed around 1230 or one and then I'm up at seven when my seven or five year old jump on my chest <laughs> and ready to ready to play and, and uh, eat breakfast in the morning. So it's a it's a long it's a very full day because I, I, I make a conscious effort to balance my family and my work. And uh, I'm putting out for my family for five, six hours before I even get to the field. And then I put out for another 10 or 12 at the field. So uh, over the course of 142 days, that can be uh, pretty grindy. But, you know, I've built, I'm built for it. I've, I've done it as a player. I now I've done it as a coach. And you had the bus trips and the shoddy hotels and the, the random acts of weather and different variables that come your way and adversities. And it's just a constant state of uncomfortableness. I mean, if you, it's, not, it's not for everybody. And that's why the baseball machine chews up a lot of players because it, is, it takes a special individual, both physically and mentally, to get through the gauntlet, to get through the grind of a baseball season. And it is uh, absolute gauntlet of of adversity and pain and difficulties and challenges and that's what i love about it though is the the constant testing that you you go through that's cool my only experience of coaching was where we went to high school sci falls i was asked to coach the varsity summer league team and i couldn't believe how different it was to lose a game as a coach versus when you played you know when you're a player you go two for four and maybe you hit a double, um, steal a base. You you still have a sense of, okay, well, I'm improving over time. I got better. I had a productive day, even though we lost. And you can look forward to the next game. When you're a coach, dude, I, I couldn't sleep at night for a summer league high school baseball game when, when we lost. And you start thinking about all the decisions that you made and decisions that you didn't make. Um, it's really taxing. So I can only imagine playing 140 games a year where you're having to get on buses be away from your family um i really admire what you're doing you're trying to impact young men one of the things i'm curious about is like what are you reading right now what what books are on your nightstand uh think and grow rich by napoleon hill it's probably 80 90 years old but it's just sage wisdom about oh as you how you think is how you act and how you act creates your your reality and create your your um, your life arc. So controlling your 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 thoughts and then controlling your habits lead to success. Um, another book named called Resilience by oh God, what's his name? He's a Navy SEAL. He's a governor now of Missouri, I think, or senator. Mm-hmm. Greiton, Eric Greiton. Mm-hmm. Uh, strong book about being uncommon with your with your habits and being uncommon with your. Um, uh, you know, being a leader and a serve, serve, service oriented, it's uh, pretty strong. And then I just finished you, uh, Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. The guy I mentioned earlier wrote a book about his life. And I thought I knew most about his life, but I didn't know all of it. And it is a really, really strong bo- book that if you want to compare yourself to someone that's really hardening themselves and callousing, callousing themselves, and uh, I recommend you read that. That's cool. I, I wrote a little bit about Think and Grow Rich in my blog post about maximizing sexual energy. Um, he, really, he talks in that book about transmuting sexual energy and how you can use it to be productive 
and um, increase your fulfillment versus excitement. And um, yeah, it's a lot about controlling thoughts. And when I read Think and Grow Rich, I remember there being a common theme throughout and he kind of saves it until the end. Um, so I, I really like how he keeps you on edge as to what, what it is that you need to be thinking. And uh, I'll share what it is. I'm, I hope I'm not ruining the book, but it really is persistence. And it really embeds that in your brain that the key to success is persistence because um, you're going to get punched in the mouth. You're going to face failure. And baseball is such a microcosm for that, man, because you what you succeed 30 percent of the time. And that is considered successful. You're going to have slumps where you go 0 for 4, 0 for 8, 0 for 12. And then you have to think on that all night. And you you think you might be able to get eight hours sleep. If you've never played baseball and, and lived through an 0 for 19 slump, you have no idea how much that weighs on you and how hard it is to sleep that night. And it affects your, it affects everything. I mean, the people around you and, uh, you know, you have to have some support. Um, and then another book that I'm going to throw out there that's really good for, for controlling thoughts is, is called As a Man Thinketh by, Jan, by James Allen mm-hmm. um, is really good. But yeah, I haven't read Resilience or David Goggins book. David Goggins was on the Joe Rogan podcast and I really got a sense for his intensity. One of the things that you talk about is consistency over intensity. And when, I've, when I heard you talk about that, I realized that I'm that way in terms of exercise. So I have been working out all my life and I don't necessarily go hard. I mean, it's rare that I go hard, but I've always figured getting into the gym is better than not getting into the gym and you're going to force your body to move. It's not like you're going to drive 15 minutes to the gym and then not do something while you're there. And nowadays with AirPods being so good, you can listen to this podcast or any podcast uh, while you're working out and you can be learning while you're working. And I know you read in between workouts, don't you? Mm hmm. Yeah, so that's just that's just so powerful. Um, I want to talk about your relationship with God. So I was raised Catholic, and I went through a tough time as a kid. Um, I wrote an article about it called Developing Mental Toughness by Digging Deep Within. And the part of the world where I come from, people don't necessarily talk about their relationship with God. It can be a little bit awkward. Uh, but that's something that you've started to do recently And it's really had me reflecting on how my relationship with God as a kid got me through a tough time. Um, Talk about your journey in that regard and how that's come together. Just like everything else, it is a journey. And it's a process that I'm, like everything else, scratching the surface of. And I'm I'm a a beginner of beginners. And I'm, I'm learning, I'm reading, I'm growing, I'm developing a relationship with God, just like I develop a relationship with anybody in my life. And that takes conversations it takes prayers it takes uh, uh solitude and um and quiet time and and it's hard it's just just like anything else it's it's easy to to skip bible reading or easy to skip your prayers and um my wife's a devout catholic and i was raised methodist and baptist and and didn't really have a lot of cl- uh, clarity when it came to the church and didn't really understand all the stories and you know what all was going on and that, so i started to reach out and watch different movies and YouTube videos and read about just the story, the greatest story ever told about this guy that came to earth um, and walked amongst men and impacted men and saved lives. And, and uh, it just, it, it struck me like it struck people for thousands of years. And it's, it uh, made me realize that, yeah, I can be impactful on this earth, but if I haven't set myself up for eternity, then, you know, you're just a dust in the wind. And I want to, I want to, I want to be with the big guy upstairs for, for life. And I want to, help my wife get there and my wife wants to help me get there. And that's why, 
you know, two weeks ago, we made a covenant with God in the Catholic Church, and we got remarried on our on our 10th anniversary uh, in front of God, and 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 uh, made a vow to uh, honor each other and honor Him, and and help each other grow and learn and and get to heaven. You know, through our actions, you don't just you don't just snap your fingers and get there. It's a it's a deliberate, conscious uh, journey to learn and follow and and act. Uh, according to the scripture, and it's it's extremely challenging, just like anything else that I get into in my life, and it's it's a challenge that I'm I'm up for uh, taking on. I notice in recent years, meditation has become in vogue. Um, I think it started in Silicon Valley, and I bought into it. I wanted to try it, maybe because I worked in technology for many years. Um, but what I found when I started meditating is that it was so similar. It's similar but different from prayer. But it closely it resembles it enough that I was like, oh, I see why these people are so fascinated with it, because typically those on the West, the left coast don't um, they they don't have any experience with prayer. They weren't raised in the church and haven't experienced the benefit. And, you know, a lot of people I have friends who are turned off by those who, who even even the mention of God and they might turn the podcast off right now since we're talking about it. Um, but if you've never tried meditation, I encourage people to try it. It will help you to uh, calm your mind down. You'll be able to control your thoughts a little better. Think about your own thinking. Um, when I pray, I, I have always, you know, what do you say to God? Start with, start with gratitude. You know, I start my day thankful. And that will shift your whole perspective on life when you start every day with gratitude. So whether you're writing in your journal, whether you're talking to God, start with gratitude and then pray for wisdom. You know, the, the, the people that I know who are the most wise have learned much of it from the Bible because there's just so much wisdom in the Bible. And then lastly, I would tell people, ask God to shine through you, right? If you're about to give a talk or you're about to make a big presentation at work or you have a job interview, Take the onus off of yourself by just sitting with your sitting with your relationship with God. Ask God to shine through you, and that will have a huge benefit to you. I think so. I'm glad. I appreciate you sharing that, man. A lot of people are uncomfortable to talk about it. The last thing I want to ask you, and we'll wrap up. How did your baseball career end? Oh, unceremoniously. As um, I, I truly believed in my all my heart that I was going to make it to the big leagues and I was going to be the 34 year old or 35 year old that uh 35 year old rookie that you know they do an ESPN special on one day and um so even up until about halfway through my last season I truly believed that and it was hard when I started to not be as good of a baseball player as I'd always been my body started to break down I wasn't as explosive I couldn't get to a fastball like I could when I was younger my arm wasn't as strong my feet weren't as fast and it was very, 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 very challenging to accept that. And the type of person I was, I, I, I didn't accept it well. I held on tight like I always do. I tried harder, which doesn't usually work. I doubled down on my habits, and nothing, nothing can, no, you know, Father Time uh, is undefeated, you know. Uh, so he, he, there was nothing I could do. And I actually went to a sports psychologist about halfway through my, uh, that Uncle Mr. Janess recommended. And we had a talk, and it was kind of like the, the the Goodwill Hunting conversation, where you know you kind of break down, and you know it's not your fault type thing. Where you know you, you, it was pretty much like you got to let go, and you got to enjoy these last few months of playing baseball for what they are. It's a chance to be on a field and embrace and 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 milk all the the beautiful things that you'll never get to do again, probably because I I decided in my mind to start putting out resumes and and getting. Uh, 
uh, my name out there for a coaching job. And um, it, it ended up being a beautiful ending because I was able to play in my hometown with my family, with my friends in attendance and take the game for what it was. And it was just a beautiful game where it was just about winning. We were trying to win a championship and um, we fell a game short of winning that championship. But it was just a it was a cool transition out because um, I had the the perspective and the clarity to approach each day with gratitude and thankfulness. And I wasn't that concerned with whether I got a hit or not. Um, it was weird because once I flipped that switch, I stopped having the butterflies during the national anthem, which is used as an indicator that you need to you need to move on. I didn't have the same tenacity where I you know I'd been a killer my whole career where I was trying to you know you're taking food off my table. I'm going to get you before you get me. And it just, not that I, I became soft, but I just saw the game for what it was. And it's a beautiful, beautiful sport that I was able to uh, enjoy the last bits of it. And uh, it worked out exactly the way it had to. And I'm so thankful that I got that clarity and I was able to end on my terms because most players don't end on their terms. They end in their twenties when they still feel strong and they don't have anywhere to play or they, you know, they just um, didn't, didn't have the graceful, ending that I had. It was unceremonious, but it was graceful and beautiful in my, from my point of view because I was able to experience it on my terms and, and go out. Uh, actually, funny story, I got my last at bat, I got tossed by the umpire, so it wasn't that graceful. <laughs> <laughs> I got in a bat in the championship game with a runner on second, down by or tie game, and I thought I was going to get the winning hit right off in the sunset with this championship winning hit. Uh, first pitch, six inches outside, call for a strike, terrible call. I kind of give him a look. Next pitch, of course, I swing at a slider in the dirt. Now it's 0-2. For sure, another slider coming again in the dirt. I'm like, Chase, don't don't swing. He throws it. I do an awesome power take, which is like a check swing <laughs> where your bat barely comes off your shoulder, but you're ready to hit, and it's like, bam, I, I, I quit on that pitch. I you know I spit on it, whatever you want to call it, and I'm, I'm giving myself a pat on the back, and as I'm patting myself on the back, the umpire steps back and just brings me with all this gusto like he was all about him. And I went bananas <laughs> because I knew it was my last at bat. And I couldn't believe this this dude was just taking it from me. And did, didn't even ask the first base umpire, you know, what he had, which is right. typical. Mm-hmm. He just did it on his own. And I just flipped it. And I went in his face and said a bunch of mean things. And I actually went back to the dugout. <laughs> a bunch and, of mean and the other umpire comes and he's the, like, crew chief. And he's like, all right, get your stuff and get out of here. But the the, the home our home clubhouse was down the right field line, which we were in the third base dugout. So I got to walk past this guy again. Mm-hmm. So now it's between innings. The other team's warming up. And I I told the screw chief, I was like, that's the last at bat of a 13-year career. I'm going to go get my money's worth. And he's like, <laughs> and he goes like, all right, we'll make it quick. <laughs> so he like shepherded me over to the guy, pretty much walked me to this umpire. And I undressed him with everything I had. And it was like 13 years of of frustrations and angst pretty much going down this guy's face with spittle <laughs> and, and uh, a lot of cuss words. And then the, I'm, I'm overstaying my welcome. The crowd starts getting restless. They're booing. I don't care. And I, so I'm walking off the field, and then the first base umpire is standing there looking like a goober, and he just missed a call like two innings before that really hurt us. And I was like, and for, as for you. <laughs> and so I let him have it, and now I'm just it's getting good to me. And I'm just wearing – I'm going absolutely crazy. I get done with him, and I'm walking off the field, and just this weird feeling hits me like, that's it, man. That's that's I'm going out guns blazing like I came yeah. in. I came in guns blazing. I'm going out guns blazing. I'm walking by their bullpen, 
and their pitchers are looking at me. I know half their bullpen because, you know, baseball is a small fraternity. And they're looking at me like I don't they've never seen this version of Chase. And they're kind of kicking their, you know, kicking the dirt in front of them, not really wanting to make eye contact. And I look at my boy uh, Ross. I look him dead in the eye and I, I break into a huge smile. I'm like, you like that? <laughs> and they all start dying laughing. They're like, that was awesome. So I go in the clubhouse. I take off my cleats. I hang it up in my locker and take a picture of my cleats hanging and you know, that's me. I hung them up and I went and watched the rest of the game from the, the, the grounds crew bench in the right field corner. And they hit a walk off home run in the bottom of the 11th in the rain. Guys splashing around the puddles for them to win the, the championship. And wow. it was just a um, it was just a kind of fitting ending, ending for me to go out that way. And uh, so I don't know if it's ever, ever retired on getting tossed or last at bat. <clears throat> <laughs> that's so awesome. And then when you finished, you wrote a, a retirement letter, right? Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah, I, I just, I'm, I'm a writer. I like to write things. And uh, I wanted to show my gratitude and my thanks to my teammates and the game and my family and all the people. I and mean, it's, it's an entire support group that gets a player, an athlete through uh, his career and I wanted to thank all of them and uh, just pour my heart out and get it all off my chest and I guess it came out pretty good and I sent it to all my friends and family and the the response I got was what really hit me the hardest when it came to looking back at my career because you know I have my championships I have my accolades and all-star trophies and stuff like that but what I always wanted to be was a good teammate I wanted to be respected by my teammates and I wanted to be considered you know that's the best compliment you get you can get is that he's a you know he's a great teammate he's a grinder He's a winner, and that the responses I got were, were that, and it was so affirming to know that I went about it the right way, and my my peers, you know, reflected what I what I had gone after for so long, and I, I I printed them out, I put them all together, so at some point I could hand my son that pamphlet or that package of of responses along with my retirement letter, and and let him read about what his dad was about, because you know it's not about the all star bat or the balls the thousand hits or whatever it's not about all that like don't look at that kid look at this look at how I went about my business and and earned the respect of my teammates through service and through my work ethic and my habits and uh it was a way for me to be very proud of a minor league career you know it's it's uh, a lot of people don't you know for success for me is being able to sleep at night you know yeah. whatever you do in life whether you play baseball or sell insurance or you know whatever you do you have a chance to be successful if you can sleep at night and look in the mirror and know that you're happy with what you're looking at and you sleep well knowing that you've you're putting out for for God and you're putting out for your family and your and your children and your and your friends and yourself and and uh everybody's capable of accomplishing that and I feel like I did and I'm still I was, I'm you're never done and now I'm 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 putting that energy and enthusiasm and perspective into into coaching just as just as hard as I did as a player That's awesome. Yeah, and it's infectious even on your buddies, man. Whenever you get big news, you share it with me. And it fires me up. And whenever I get big news, I share it with you. And, you know, you're just as happy for my success as your own. And um, to go through life and have a buddy like that, it isn't a small thing. So um, I appreciate you doing this, man. This is a great chat. I hope people get some benefit from it. I love you, man. I love you, too, man. I appreciate you taking the time. And it's so it's so impactful to, for, for men to get together and sharpen each other. You know, iron sharpens iron. And, and it's too hard to go through this life alone. That's why we lean on on each other, our family, our friends, our God. Um, and so it's it's paramount that we are open up our mind to learn and to grow and to develop and to have that beginner's mind because uh, if you stay fixed, the, the, the life gets very narrow for you. But the more you open your mind, the more opportunities and the more lanes open up for you to have success and have wonderful experiences. And I, I recommend everyone listening to go through life with that beginner's mind and, and to be that 
mentorn, you know, you're part mentor, you're part intern, every situation you go into, you're trying to learn, but you're also trying to impart wisdom and develop people and impact people and empower people and, and make a difference amongst the people about, around you, but also let them make a difference on you. And to have that openness of mind to receive wisdom and to give wisdom is, is, is the, is the, that's the heart of, 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 of life for my, in my opinion, that's where the beauty happens and that's where the magic happens, but it has to start with you. It has to start with how you perceive situations, how you go in through life. You know, are you open? Or are you, are you closed and, uh, opening your mind to be, to be humble and know that you don't know it all is the first step. That's it, man. Chase Lambin, how can people find more out, uh, more about you? Man, I'm not a big social media guy. It's not like, uh, I guess Facebook <laughs> type in, <laughs> type in good. Chase Lambin or, uh, uh, hopefully I come to a field near you if you ever have any minor league parks around you and I may be coming coming through I've uh, uh, I guess just Facebook or you want me to give an email or phone number or what it would uh, whatever you want man if you want people to contact you all right if anybody wants to reach out and, and write uh, write an email or something you can you can reach me at chase Lambin dot uh, chase Lambin at yahoo.com uh, I'd love to to, to widen my net of, of, of influence uh, so if you have any questions or you want to uh, uh, pick my brain in any way and yeah, reach out and, and write. I'm, 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 I'm an open book. <clears throat> That's it. Tell him you heard about him from the man overseas podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Um, I don't take it lightly that you've chosen to spend your time with us. I know that y'all could be doing anything in the world. So thank you. It means a lot to me. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please uh, let us know in the comments. And also if you're not already subscribed to the blog, please do so. My Instagram and Twitter is at man underscore overseas. Thank you folks. <laughs>